0: Welcome, friends and listeners. I'm Francine Parola from Smart Loving, and our Smart Loving conversation today is about the transition to parenthood. Um, I'm joined today by my colleague, whom many of you know, Laura Kane, and her husband, Joe. It's been a long time desire to have Joe on the podcast. So, welcome to you both, Laura. It's great to have you back after maternity leave. And, Joe, um, in your new role as a dad, welcome.
1: Thank you, Thanks. Francine. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks, um, It is our um our habit to just share with our audience so that we they can get to know us a little bit better something of our faith walk just a little bit of a snippet in the last few days so where have you felt the lord's presence go i think we're going to you first
1: yeah i've uh, i felt the lord's presence mainly in my podcast i think a lot of people know me i listen to podcasts i'm walking around doing laundry I'm listening to a podcast, and I, I recently ran across uh, Father Mike Schmitz uh, homilies, and I've just been binging homilies for the last like two years, just one after another, and it's been really great, very insightful it's, too. It's
0: it's great when you get you come in after they've been doing it for a while, and you've got that backlog, and uh, even though it's obviously not from the most necessarily the day of the the gospel, it's just diving deep into scripture, and he's good too, like Father Mike. What about you, yeah. Laura? What are you doing?
2: Well, I felt the Lord's presence in a very weird, strange way after we gave birth to Jason. We made the birth announcement and we got loads of gifts and we had a really freaky gift because my brother gave us a gift that was really meaningful without even realising it. We were watching a series where uh, they were talking about cannolis and so Joe had said before we give birth we should really go on a date night as our last, you know, as a couple without kids. And I said, look, oh, I don't want to go to a dinner or a long lunch, but I really want to try a cannoli because I've never tried one before. (laughs) So we we said we were going to go to a cafe and try some, never did. And then after we gave birth to Jason, lo and behold, a cake box arrives. We open it up and it's all these cannolis. And I said, who Hmm. is that from? Because we hadn't shared this with anybody. And it was from my brother James and his wife Emily. So we called them up and we were like, why did you send us that? Did we tell you the story about that we were going to go on a date night and have cannoli and we never did? And my brother was like, no. I just thought, oh, that's a nice thing to send. And it just gave us goosebumps, didn't it, Joe? that – we were going to do that. We never got around to it. It was like the Lord just saying, you've had your son now and just the icing on the cake. Here's some cannoli.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, were they good cannoli?
2: (laughs) Oh, they're amazing. And it was just, but it was really that, you know, you just have those spiritual Mm. moments where you're like, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us through our loved ones.
0: Yeah. They're God moments, aren't they? They're really memorable. For me, the the thing that comes to mind is I did the St. Michael's Lent this year, which is um, a tradition, particularly in some of the monasteries, from the Feast of the Assumption, so 15th of August, through to St. Michael's Feast Day, the Archangels at the end of September. The idea is it's just a little bit of a a top-up between the big Lent, the major Lent. And I was just praying for one of our sons' vocational discernment. I just really felt the Lord asking me to focus in on his discernment. And um, so I completed that and he's just announced his engagement. So there you go. Um, I feel like that was part of just supporting him in his journey and his story as well. And again, just the Lord guiding me there. So wow, there's big news all around. Yes, we might get into our topic as many of our listeners would know who are our parents, that it's a big adjustment. There's going from just the two of you with a life that you're able to sort of set up and organise according to your own sort of plans and preferences, and suddenly it's upended with this little dependent person who doesn't sleep and doesn't eat on schedule and poops and makes a mess and totally turns your heart inside out. So we're really looking forward to hearing uh, more about your experiences, particularly as it's so fresh for you. Jason's five months old now. Yeah, yeah. But if we could backtrack a little bit, because becoming pregnant wasn't easy. It was not so easy for you too. It was a long time of praying and trying. So can you share just some of your thoughts and emotions as it became apparent that conception might not happen easily for you? You go first, Joe.
1: Yeah, I, I, I actually remember it pretty vividly. I think a lot of people who have infertility stories, they say, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot how it felt. Um, also, I've learned by podcasts. But for me, I, I remember looking at our house that we bought. And just saying, what's the use of this house? I've got four bedrooms, only only one of them's filled, and uh, you know, like like this, like what should we do? Should we downsize? I remember feeling feeling very very hopeless for a while, but more more lost. I would say like like, you know, we had this plan, we had this pathway nine years go by. People stop asking you, you know, hey, when are you going to have kids? And uh, it's a bit of a red flag. And you you tend to think um, almost, you know, sh- should should we be doing something else? So that w- that was kind of the challenge for me personally.
0: Mm-hmm. What about you, Laura?
2: My thoughts and feelings were just like frustration because it was unexplained infertility. We didn't we didn't really get a reason. So different doctors would say different things and they'd have different protocols and they would all like cast shade on the other's treatment. And so that was confusing as well because they would say, Oh what, they had you on what tablet or whatnot? And that was frustrating too, until I realized that's just how they would communicate and they would express their interest in other treatments i think i channeled i didn't feel hopeless at all i actually was like maybe this is the way i'm becoming a saint through this cross and through this suffering so i really channeled finding mums who needed help who had lots of Mm. kids so and helping them with laundry and it really gave me a perspective of wow the grass isn't always greener like that is having lots of children is also a cross as well and a beautiful joy as well but it's hard it's really difficult Mm. So I got a bit of comfort in that and we also loved sponsoring engaged couples because we have lots of time and energy (laughs) and disposable income too. So I was seeing both, I was having mixed emotions about it. I was like take advantage of this time but also the feelings of frustration of why isn't something quite normal, why isn't it happening for us.
0: Mm. And, I mean, a lot of couples will testify and, in fact, a lot of couples break up over the stress that infertility can put on a relationship as you each try to cope with it and process it, sometimes at different paces and in different ways. Um. What was what? What could you kind of observe or share with our listeners? Or advice around how you coped with that kind of impact and the stress on your relationship? I would do
1: that, Lo.
2: Yeah, Joe's pointing at me. Look, thank you to you, Fran, and Byron because I think doing the Smart Loving Engage course helped us a lot, wouldn't you say, Joe? In terms of being able to voice our frustrations and. You know, for instance, when you're going through fertility treatments, the fertility drugs can make you as the woman really moody because you're being mm-hmm. pumped up with hormones and things like that. So, you know, I would just say to Joe, I'm feeling really cranky right now. You know, please, if I'm mean to you, understand it's coming from, you know, I'm all out of balance hormonally. I felt closer to you, Joe. I don't know if you felt we were in it together in in that struggle. And we had all those great relationship tools that I think really helped. It was. Do you want to talk about like the whole timing of, you know, that was f- f- quite stressful in our relationship. Did you want to speak to that?
1: Not in detail, Lara. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean there was there was a lot of timing. um I mean, you have to you know take pills, inject, take your vitamins, avoid gluten or whatever the latest you know diet fad was of the day, and and the, the days would change. So like you'd have to get your calendar out and literally set reminders. And buy like, you know, smartwatches to remember like how to you know, monitor all this stuff. So it was, it was another level of timing and organization planning on top of two full-time jobs, dealing with COVID, managing a an undisciplined puppy during COVID, like all this stuff, right? So, but from that perspective, it, w- it was it was really just about adhering to the plan and having faith. So you here's the plan, adhere to the plan. Didn't work this month. There's always another month. There's always another month, and we just kind of kept it up for about nine years, yeah. and then we eventually got it. So, yeah.
0: And there can be well-meaning comments that can end up being insensitive. I I recall we were we were at the opposite end of the spectrum. We were hyper fertile, and yes. it, getting pregnant came very easily to us. In fact, if we took our eye off the ball and the natural family planning for a minute, we seemed to conceive. And I remember sort of talking about and almost sort of whinging in a in a humorous sort of way to and a friend a couple who had been unable to have children. They'd actually adopted four disabled children, three of them with Down syndrome. And just seems their immediate response was, "Oh, what a blessing!" Like we were kind of saying, they oh, poor us, you know. We've got to be so diligent." And just we we were so convicted by their response, how gracious they were, but also how pathetically insensitive we were. <laughs> How how did you cope with that, with those sorts of comments? Well-meaning, but just like so disconnected from your experience? I have
2: a, quite a thick skin because I know that people aren't intending to be cruel. And I often put my foot in my mouth, <laughs> quick to talk and talk too much and say something. And then, oh, what was I thinking? That person's struggling with this. And I've, you know, probably upset them. So yeah, just coming from a A point of, you know, devil's advocate for those who say things that like really sting that they didn't mean it. Like, often people have are coming from good places. I think, Joe, we used humor a lot and we were really open with each other if we were if our feelings were hurt. So, I think my advice to couples is to you have to grow a thick skin and not take everything really sensitively. I know it's super hard Mm -hmm. to do it, but yeah, people. They don't realize what they're saying, and so to fall out with someone over it, it's just it's not worth it.
1: If I if I could say this, to put the cards on the table, I think it's also a generational thing. I I did find that a lot of the older aunts and uncles were kind of like, well, where, where's the baby? You know, and but that's as Laura said, like you know, that that's it's a almost a generational slash cultural thing. Whereas the uh, you know the, our younger friends didn't really ask us as much. Not that they were any more sensitive; it's just you know different different priorities, I suppose.
3: Mm, but mm. You, you
1: take it all with a grain of salt, and you, you, yeah, you, you know people don't mean you know anything bad by it. It's actually interesting because I noticed after five years, when we ticked over into year five, that's when people stopped asking. And actually, mm. that was harder. And I, I know it sounds like, well, you can't win either way. But for me personally, when people stopped asking, that's when it felt more hopeless.
0: Mm, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good, um, a good lesson for, um, we listeners to just take on board a little bit that, and maybe sometimes even that open conversation around how can we support you? Do you want us to not to, to ask you about to like, there might be some individual preferences around that, but, um, often we don't even have that. We don't think to have that conversation with the person that we love. We're just making assumptions around.
1: That's a great, that's great advice actually to ask the question. Mm I think asking mm. the question, you can never go wrong with asking the question.
0: Like, yeah. hey, do
1: you want me to ask as opposed to where's the baby? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Or if you don't mind, I just don't want to be reminded of it. Don't bring it up. You know, let's talk about something else. Yeah. yeah. And there could be because people will be different, right? They'll they'll have a different way of coping. Yeah. So you finally got this pregnancy going. And um, I remember the excitement um, and the, the birth plan was in place. But like so many couples, it didn't quite go to plan after a very long labor, well past your due date, um, you ended up with an emergency cesarean section. Can you talk us through what happened and how you each handled the situation? It's often, I mean, obviously the focus is usually on the woman because she's the one doing the birthing. But I know from Byron's testimony that it's excruciating for the husband to see the woman they love in so much pain and feeling so helpless. So tell us, Tell us how that was for you, and yeah, just share if you've got any tips for our listeners. Joe, you first.
1: Yeah, so uh, it was—it's really interesting because every movie you see, like Look Who's Talking with John Travolta, it's always uh, the wife, you know, screaming at the husband or something, like, "Hey, I can't believe he did this to me!" and blah blah blah. And for me, it was like reverse psychology. It really freaked me out because um, when Laura was in her first four hours of a twenty-four hour labor, she was really getting her contractions. And she was like hugging me or we're kind of swaying back and forth. There's photos of all this too. And uh, she's just like, you're going to be a great dad. Uh, you're going to be a great dad. And then and then I got really emotional. And I had not cried in like 10 years or something. And I started like bawling. So <laughs> it was a very, th- th- and that kind of kicked off the, ne- the next 20 hours of labor. Um, so it was a very surreal experience. Like the most emotional experience I've ever gone through during uh during laura's labor and especially when she went into um into surgery as well and uh then when when jason came out and then like the song played i'll let you tell that story laura <laughs> but when the song played and here comes the sun you know our name, son's name's jason like all this stuff kind of came together i'm like this is just one giant cathartic 24-hour period and yeah oh my it, it, I'll, I'll remember it forever
0: wow Laura, what yeah. about you? What was what, apart from contractions? What was happening for you emotionally?
2: Well, I had a real rollercoaster experience. The first thing that I did was a huge mistake. Was um, the day before I started to get contractions, and I thought they were pretty serious. So I call up the midwife and I said, "I think I need to come into the hospital. Like these are getting really painful." And she goes, "Laura, if you are speaking to me on the phone, you've got ages to go. You don't need to come in." And I'm thinking in my head. Oh my gosh, my midwife doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm about to pop out a baby. (laughs) And she was so right. I was way, (laughs) I, I knew what she meant later on when I got real serious contractions. But I started to, instead of resting like she said, I was timing them all day, the day before. So then I went into 24 hours without sleeping, into a 24 hour labor. By the end of it, I was so sleep deprived and getting and just exhausted that. It ended up Jason got stuck and then it was an emergency C-section. So I was trying to do it without any um, pain relief, just the gas. And at first they put me into the, the bath. I was going to try to have a water birth and it was really hot and my eyes were closed and I was just trying to go into like a zone. My mind started to go into really weird places. Like I thought at one stage I was like, I'm, I'm trapped. I'm in pain. I'm in this cause I got trapped underneath the taps. And because my eyes were closed I couldn't get out I don't know it was just I was I was losing the plot and I felt like I was in hell. I was like I'm in pain I can't escape this and I then I was like thinking to myself, Laura stop you going down a really bad mental track start saying your, you know Angel of God um, prayer dear guardian angel. And then luckily the midwife said that she couldn't get this um the senses to hear Jason's heartbeat. So she's like, I'm gonna have to get you out of the bath, which was the best thing because I had to open my eyes, they turned on the lights, and I just was like, stop going down a bad train of thought. You weren't in hell. <laughs> it was you were just in a hot bath, you're okay. Just breathe the gas, you'll cope with the pain. And then from then on, I was just going through mental, every contraction, I would find a little different mental game to play with myself. So one of the contractions, Joe was massaging one of my shoulders, the midwife was massaging the other shoulder, and I was just, I was singing, row, row, row your boat. And I was (laughs) imagining that they were rowing, and I was like, I'm going to row this baby out of me. And every contraction, I would come up with some weird mental game like that, to get through it. So yeah, it was a crazy mental journey for me, a spiritual experience. And then towards the end of the 24 hours, um, Trish Anderson, a beautiful parishioner I knew from St Agatha's Parish, had given me a St Gerard prayer book. And St Gerard is the saint of um, pregnant mothers. And so I asked for that um, prayer book and I quickly opened up to a prayer for labouring mothers and was praying that. So I went from (laughs) thinking I was in hell when I was in the bath to then um, asking St. Jared to intercede for me. That was the spiritual ups and downs of yeah. a crazy 24 hours. Mm.
1: And I was praying that Laura would uh, get the epidural. And then she did. And my <laughs> prayers were answered. And uh, <laughs> then the next thing you know, we're, we're eating a porto and uh, <laughs> Laura can't feel anything. It was great.
0: The, right. um, it, it is such a, a, a difficult thing that I know Byron and I, we weren't always on the same page with the birth plan and he yeah. was, he was very much an interventionist type of model and I was shooting for the full natural thing and uh, it, it's, it's, you're under so much stress and it's happening real time. So it's not like you could say, time out. We need to talk about this. It's like, yeah. no, no, the decision has got to be made. God bless you both. Wow. What a, what a journey. And I Um. said,
2: I actually said that to Joe. I said, the midwife was like, look, Laura, it's 24 hours. You're exhausted. I think we need to think about the epidural. I know it wasn't in your birth plan. So I said to Joe, look, you're the spiritual director of the family. Should I get an epidural? And Joe said, please, Laura, get the epidural. I said, okay, I'll do it. And it was was the right thing to do in the end. I just, it gave me time to rest, to eat Mm -hmm. something. I'd completely been sick. So I had no energy left. All the contents of my stomach was you know had been ejected (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it was the right thing to do in the end and I just had to had to trust Joe in that moment that he's my husband and he wants what's best for me and so does the midwife but it was hard to let go of control.
0: Yeah and especially when you've spent nine years having to be completely on the ball with everything so to then be it's so much out of control is um, very emotionally challenging as well. Um, That's so powerful. Thank you. We might just take a quick break and then we'll be back to go a little bit deeper.
3: Smart Loving Fertility. There's a smarter way to manage your fertility, one that works with your body, your marriage and your faith. Smart Loving Fertility is an online course based on the Symptothermal Method. It incorporates a unique blend of scientific insights with relationship frameworks and Catholic theology to foster intimacy and help you flourish as a couple. The course will allow you to grow closer as a couple, to raise a family and keep your marriage vibrant, manage your fertility naturally, confidently and with more freedom. Visit smartloving.org forward slash fertility. Gift certificates are also available if you want to purchase the fertility course for a friend or family member.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Smart Loving Conversations. We've been talking about the transition to parenthood. And psychologists tell us that there are three maturational crises in life and associated with really important life stage transitions. The first one we're all aware of, that's adolescence. And there's obviously physiological maturation of puberty, which tends to be reasonably fast, and then a slower or longer psychological maturation. And our culture is put in all sorts of sociological markers, like we have an age of consent, a driver's license, graduating from school, voting, you know, legal age for alcohol and cigarettes and our movies and things like that. So there's some cultural recognition of the transition. The other one we're all really aware of is midlife. And for women, again, it's a very strong physiological changes of menopause. But there's really important psychological ones for both men and women. And it's often around coming to terms with mortality and the limitations and the bit of taking stock of life and where we are in terms of where we thought we'd be. And it can be, again, a very disruptive and emotional time. But the third one that often isn't recognised is this transition to parenthood. And again, for women, um, it's interesting how all of these transitions relate to our fertility. For women, you've got that very powerful physiological changes of pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding, and there's both. But for both, again, there's intense psychological adjustments. But really different journeys. The woman is living it in her body for nine months in the lead up to to birth, and um, the man often doesn't. It doesn't often become very real for him until he's in the labour ward. And I know for Byron and I, he didn't really switch on to it until about you know seven or eight months into the pregnancy where it's sort of like he head came up for air and he thought, hey, I better get serious. We're having a baby next month. So you're five months into parenthood now. What's been the biggest adjustment for you in terms of this major life transition point? Mm.
2: Just having someone completely reliant on you for the Mm -hmm. first time in my life, somebody's completely reliant on me, Um, that's huge. Yeah,
0: yeah, for everything. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And 24 hours. Like it's not like you can fix it and say, okay, now I'm done. I can go put my feet up go to the bathroom have a shower yeah exactly
1: yeah for, for me I I used to I mean like just after COVID, I, I started hitting the skies and I was flying probably once every two or three weeks a lot of times internationally to Singapore and stuff like that and I used to look forward to these trips like obviously I miss Laura but I used still like to get away too and now I I feel a lot of guilt even even leaving the house and then uh on the plane right back from you know the work trip I'll, I'll be on my phone looking at photos of you know, the family that laura sends me and stuff like that so i definitely have this sort of this radius of uh, this, this sort of radius that i don't like i don't like to leave i like to kind mm-hmm. of you know be here mm-hmm. it's almost like COVID by choice like i like to like be, be within uh you know be within x amount of case from from the family so that's changed a bit in terms of you know wanting to be home more
0: Mm. And when they're so little, they are changing, developing so quickly. I know because Byron did a lot of travel as well mm. throughout our our marriage. And he would come back sometimes after being away for four days. And the child would even look different. Like he'd say, yeah. he's put on weight. Like he's chubbier in the face. Or, or she wasn't crawling when I left. And <laughs> the changes can be quite dramatic when you're away for a few days.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, like this kid will grow you know, more hair, hold Mm-hmm. he'll even do things differently too like there was uh something that happened where I, I went to singapore uh and you would put your hand in front of him and he wouldn't necessarily grab your hand and then it came back and then all of a sudden he's grabbing fingers i'm like this is he's like mm-hmm. you know self-aware <laughs> he's growing more and more you know uh both physically and mentally uh, so you, you kind of don't want to miss anything right so i think that's that, that was probably the biggest change for me
0: I was just thinking, our daughter, Kiara, she downloaded, she's got some app she uses that gives you, like, week by week, the different developmental stages of the child. And I'm always amazed where she'll say, Oh, you know, Rosalina, she's a bit grumpy. She's learning how to categorize this week. <laughs> and it'd be like, Okay, all right. So you've got a kind of an explanation for why they're feeling a bit, you know, just grumpy or, you know, not quite themselves or, oh, she's you know she's doing she's growing teeth or she's got this happening or there's some neurological development phase happening um, i must find out what that app is and i'll pop it into the show notes for our listeners what about your relationship there's a big adjustment it's not just learning how to be parents to jason it's also learning how to be a husband a wife as a mum and a dad which is a different way of it. it's recast your own relationship can you tell us a little bit about how that's been and and how you're adjusting go joe can I go first Yes, do
1: I even with all the sleepless nights and even with all like, you know, the runny noses and stuff, it's still better than third trimester pregnancy. That was the that was by far the hardest. That was when emotions were the highest, you know, little snappy here and there. Mobility was was impacted, which is a big deal for Laura. Laura needs, needs to move around and stuff. So from that perspective, I mean, that, that was the, the worst. <laughs> so this is, it, it's actually a lot easier. It's a lot easier as long as you can manage your schedule, as long as you can plan things and and even plan for a block of free time. That seems to be the trick for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And how has our relationship changed? Jo? I feel like as well as my romantic partner, it's almost like you're my teammate in Jason, you know, our project is Jason. and It's like, have you got the bottles? Like it's a lot of, Data upload and checking, whereas before we had ten years of just romance, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. we we've never had to be so. It's a it's a continued project that doesn't stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a bit of that. I, I have I have noticed that Laura and I. I mean, so Laura and I used to be. We would we we would work together, but work separately on a product like, like if we had a pile of laundry, we wouldn't fold it together as an assembly line. She'd grab her pile. I'd do my pile an Excel spreadsheet taxes, whatever the thing was, we'd have to divide and conquer. That's why we worked, right? Because we're Mm -hmm. both kind of type A. And I noticed that there was a stage where we both started like working as an assembly line, like with the sterilization of the bottles. Like it was like two bartenders behind a bar, just like making drinks, you know, in in coordination. And I'm like, this is interesting. Like we're, we're physically working together more because we have to, Mm -hmm. because if we Mm -hmm. don't then think then stuff doesn't get done in between the naps.
0: That's good. That's good. And what about your relationship with your parents and siblings? Um, I think your parents, you you have a niece or a nephew, don't you? So it wasn't their first time as a grandparents. How's that transition gone? Have you been able to negotiate that yeah, with, you know, ma- without too much trouble?
2: Grandma becomes wise. My mum becomes so much wiser than I knew she was. But, you know, I'm just because she's done it right. So it's like, mum, this is happening. And suddenly she's the source of all knowledge and wisdom, <laughs> And your dad has given you good tips as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, my dad's 12,000 miles away, but we, we've probably talked more now virtually than we did when I, I lived like 50 K away from him in uh, two different states in USA. He'll give advice on, you know, like ailments and stuff. Like, ah, oh, he'll be fine. Usually it's, ah, oh, he'll be fine. Like that's usually his <laughs> advice. Um, give it a day. Yeah, yeah, give it a day, ah, oh, will be fine. But he, he, he talks about, you know, how you guys need to be a cohesive unit Kind of echoing some of the smart loving sentiments, like the, the the stability in the household starts with the mother and the father and that relationship, and then that will kind of you know drip mm-hmm. down and disseminate down to, to the raising of the kids. So he 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 kind of uh, reinforces that in a lot of conversations with us.
0: I found that with my parents, there was almost like a, a stepping into, I, I guess, a deeper understanding or a peer because we were now experiencing we we had a shared experience of being a parent, not just. Prior to that, we were the shared experience was we'd be, been in the same family, but it, having that shared experience of being a parent and they understood what it's like to just be on call all the time and the sleeplessness and the challenges of those, they knew it. And so there was just that common, common understanding, which I found really matured our relationship. They became sort of almost like peers and friends as much as support network as well.
2: And my brother has had two kids, so he's now, even though he's my younger brother, he's more knowledgeable than me in this aspect of our Mm -hmm. life. So he's a resource to tap on as well, and his wife Emily. And my younger brother, who hasn't had children, he's just the best with kids, Um, Mm -hmm. my brother Mm -hmm. Patrick. So he will just hold a baby and, like, talk to them in baby talk, and he's the best uncle. So that's so interesting to see him as an uncle, not just as my brother.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it brings out a real tenderness in them, i found, with um looking at the way out my kids rela- relate to their nephews and well, their nieces. There's a side of them that um, I didn't expect to see until the flourish flourished or come forward until they'd had their own children. But there's something about an infant that softens the heart of even the, the gruffest, toughest bloke. You would have got lots of advice. Joe. you mentioned you got good advice from your dad. Laura, what, what sort of advice have, have you received? Because some of it's good, some of it's bad. What would you pass on to others? I think
2: you do have to do what is best for you and your family. So I got really good advice from our sponsor couple actually who accompanied us through our Engage course Philippa told me, research as much as you can about breastfeeding because a lot of people research about the birth and that happens quite quickly. Well, in my case, 24 hours, but still mm-hmm. it's only a day, whereas you breastfeed for months and, you know, sometimes years. So I did a course, a online breastfeeding course, which was very helpful. But I think, I know the devil just loves to steal our joy. So I wasn't able to exclusively breastfeed. And this particular course was like just so giving kudos and like putting that as the gold standard of exclusively breastfeeding. And I was just broken hearted, wasn't I, Joe? Because at day four, Jason had just lost too much weight. He wasn't getting enough milk from me. So we had to top up with formula. And because I'd heard all of that great mm-hmm. advice, I just was broken hearted that I couldn't just give him all the nutrients he needed so yeah my advice would just be like you just have to do what's best for your, your child and your family and your own mental health you just do your best and that's all you can do mm. otherwise you just send yourself crazy and mm. you, you you're robbed of the joy because you're feeling mum guilt when you, you shouldn't
0: mm.
1: there's a dangerous uh, kind of uh middle ground between informing yourself and educating yourself and setting expectations because there's certain things outside of your control. A C-section is largely outside of your control, right? So if you have a plan and, you know, in your mind, this is the plan and you go off the plan, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You should be aware of as many potential pathways as possible and whatever gets that baby out and fed and healthy, that is the plan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think that's that's probably the advice is, you know, stay informed, but don't don't necessarily, set expectations that are outside of your control.
0: And I don't know about you, but I've found, and I'm probably guilty of this a bit myself, is that as women, we become a bit like battle veterans, where our birth experiences become the things that we talk about as if we, uh, and there's an adherence and it's almost a religious conviction around the right way to do birth and the right way to breastfeed and the right way to raise your children. And we become can become quite insistent and Dictatorial towards others and our friends, and it can put really put friendships under stress. So it's good for me to hear your experiences around. Well, we wanted to do it this way, but we couldn't. We had to. We had to make some adjustments, and just to have that sensitivity, as you know, with friends and colleagues. I must admit, I'm often biting my tongue with um, my grandchildren and and you know our daughter and son-in-law, reminding myself they've got to make, they've got to do it their own way. And it's, it's may not be inferior to the way that I would do it. I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to accept that. But you know, that that's the reality. It's it's you only you as a couple have that insight into all the nuances and things that you have to um, weigh up and make judgments on. Yes, absolutely. Look, We might just take a quick break there listeners. um, And we're going to be back again soon to continue this conversation.
3: Smart loving newlywed. If you are recently married, one of the most important things you can do for your marriage in its first year is to establish a habit of regular couple time. Smart Loving Newlywed is designed to help you do this. The content is drawn from Smart Loving's acclaimed relationship courses, which are used by thousands of couples. They explore timeless themes and are full of practical strategies. We want to help you establish simple lifestyle habits that will nourish your intimacy and protect your relationship from decay. Once a month, you will get an email in your inbox exploring the topic and detailing an activity for you to do as a couple. This includes some individual reflection questions, instructions for sharing together and something to do during the week. Schedule a regular date night with your spouse where you can explore the topic together over dinner or a glass of wine. Visit smartloving.org forward slash newlywed to enroll today.
0: Hi there, friends. This is Smart Loving Conversations and it's time for Q&A. We get questions every day from wives, husbands and couples and sometimes clergy from around the world. And today we have a question from Lawrence from Canberra. And he says, how do I handle the situation of my partner who thinks I don't cherish her because she thinks I don't subscribe to her ideas most of the time? Laura, what, what's your reaction? What would you advise, Lawrence?
2: Yeah, good question, Lawrence. So your partner, she's not feeling cherished by you because you're not subscribing to her ideas. I guess my, maybe I'll just give an example from our own marriage in help, in case it helps Lawrence. So we use a tool, smart loving tool called values-based decision-making. And when we were engaged, we had a bit of a disagreement over I wanted a gelato cart after our wedding mass and Joe was against it because when we planned the wedding and you know got the Excel spreadsheet and got the costings and budget for the wedding, a gelato cart wasn't on that original list. It was kind of a, an afterthought closer to the day. So anyway, we were going back and forth about um, should we have the gelato cart or not. I said, look, let's get the smart, loving uh, workbooks and just figure out, use the value based decision making tool about this. I wasn't feeling cherished by Joe because I really wanted this, you know, for for our big day. So I said, "Well, Joe, what's your value behind saying no to me that I can we can't have this gelato cart?" And Joe was like, "Well, we've got a budget and I feel um, you know, it was $500 we didn't expect to spend and my value is wanting us to go into marriage uh debt-free so that we can, you know, get a house and get on with our life and and not be in a huge amount of debt." And so I said to Joe, "Well, oh, I really think that's a beautiful value behind the decision to say no to the – if you're saying no to me because of that value, I see your point of view and thank you for thinking about our financial security. And then Joe said to me, well, what's your value behind wanting a gelato cart? Aren't we paying for everybody to go to dinner afterwards at the reception, you know, feeding them there? And I said, yeah, well, you know, we've got kids from the youth group and I'm the youth minister – And my family's Irish and English and, you know, Irish hospitality is a big deal to me. And so everybody who's come to our wedding and prayed for us and watched us get married and participated in our sacrament of marriage, I want to offer them a bit of hospitality, a bit of a sugar and a gelato. I think that's a really nice thing. And Joe said, look, I think that's a beautiful value and I've been a recipient of that Irish hospitality and so I felt heard then, right, by mm-hmm. Joe saying that. So, anyway, long story short, I said, okay, if I can show to you, Joe, that I've saved $500 from, you know, you got a quote for $2,000 for the flowers. If I can get the flowers for $1,500, could I swap that $500 bucks for a gelato cart to honor my value? And Joe was like, yes, absolutely. So, That was an example, you know, we were just butting heads over gelato cart, yes, no, yes, no, I want it, no, I don't want it, blah, blah, blah. But once we got to the value behind the decision, Mm -hmm. I felt cherished and Joe felt cherished.
0: So Mm.
2: I tell that story and hope Lawrence can hear it. Perhaps your wife is wanting things and you guys aren't talking to the underlying values of those ideas that she's subscribing to or that you're not subscribing to her ideas so that's my story in the hope it helps Mm,
0: Lawrence great story I haven't heard that one before I love the idea of gelato after church (laughs) we should have that every Sunday (laughs) forget the sausage sizzle let's have a gelato cart.
2: absolutely
0: (laughs) Jo do you have anything you want to add to that story or any other advice for Lawrence around I guess reaching out when there's that difference of understanding or a breakdown of communication
1: no, it's that's it's a good example. I mean, essentially, it's about listening to each other and understanding that the the meaning behind people people's preferences and their reactions to things. Mm-hmm. you know if uh, if she feels criticized or dismissed because of you not wanting to go down her pathway or ideas, um you know there should be a good reason for it. It should and you should also take in I guess her her preferences around those ideas outside of the face value.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm conscious just listening to your talk. I. Um, Baron and I had a bit of an um, exchange last weekend where he, I can't even remember what it was now, but he started to talk about it and he had this kind of this grandiose idea. So you can even hear the way I'm describing it as grandiose. There's already a judgment implied. And I came in with a little bit around, well, when are you going to have time to do that? Like, and, and I just saw him deflate. I felt terrible about it, but I was reacting against, I guess, to a sense of, hang on a minute, I'm so hungry for your time, I'm already feeling depleted of, you know, deprived of that, and now you want to start another project that would take your way. And I, I tried to explain to him not very successfully, I'm sorry I'm being defensive, but I'm trying to protect my heart from being hurt. Mm. And... um. Unfortunately, we were on our way to somewhere, I think we were going to church, so we didn't have time to sort of continue the conversation. But it's just its sort of those things that can happen in a split second. Like we were literally, you know, within five minutes of leaving the house, it all happened and unfolded. And I kind of think that sometimes, you know, even after 35 years of marriage, we're still learning how to check those initial kind of reactive responses that are kind of impulsive and without just a lot of thought and learning how to repair after them or, or backtrack and, and explore it and come back and make the apology and um, try to do that reaching out to the other's world to understand well how is the perspective from of this I'm hearing it this way but you're experiencing it in a very different way or you're seeing something very different to what I'm what I'm interpreting from what you're saying Yeah, um, and I guess that Good. Um, it, it takes time. It takes a, a, a willing heart to always be prepared to apologise and to do those repair attempts and things like that. So, Lawrence, I hope I hope those thoughts are helpful to you. If you're one of our listeners, if you've got questions or even comments to add for Lawrence, you can um, jump on to martloving.org slash conversations and find this link and you can add your advice for Lawrence there as well. Before we sign off, as we always do, we'd like to share a blessing uh, with you, our listeners. For me, I've got a little bit of an interesting one. I've just finished listening to a podcast called The Exorcist Files. It's by iHeartMedia. It's professionally produced. Uh, It's a little bit like listening to a horror story in a way. So don't listen to it just before you go to sleep. But it's based on Father Carlos Martin's an American Exorcist and his case studies. And he intercepts all the way through it and explains what's going on. Really good listen. Um, it's quite engaging, professionally produced with actors and things like that. They re, re sort of they make like an audio play. So I can recommend that one if, if you're curious about the whole business of spiritual warfare. And what the church teaches—that's a really engaging way to listen to it. And I think even people who are not Catholics or are not practicing their faith could listen to that quite easily. It's not—it's not a heavy lecture or you know theological study. What about you, Laura? Do you want to go next?
2: Yes, please. My bless you is as we're coming up to the season of Advent. It's a children's Christmas book, and it's called A Small Miracle by Peter Collington. So it's actually a wordless storybook. So it's got 96 pictures and in the story the wooden figurines in a Christmas crate come to life to save a poor old woman. So it's a narrative about divine intervention <laughs> and the images create the consequence of either ignoring or heeding the plight of others so mm-hmm. yeah it's just an interesting concept like it's a book a picture book with no words and just tells the story through the
0: images what a great one for you know young children before they're able to read like they can still really enter into that i'll have to pick that one up for my grandchildren joe do you have a blessing for our listeners
1: i guess the blessing would be the blessing would be uh yeah father mike schmidt's homilies on uh, uh on repeat And and if you get before you hop on a plane, download like 15 of them and just blast through because you'll, uh, you'll land in a better, in a better position.
2: Mm. Tell about Mm. the one that impacted you, the one on anxiety.
1: Oh, yeah. I I think, um, one of the things that kind of hit me was, I want to say it was around when Jason was month four and he was becoming a bit, as I say, self aware. Like he was becoming less of a little pudgy little ball of whatever. And he 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 was becoming a person. And, um,
3: uh, he already was a person, <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, he's I like,
1: know what you mean. I know yeah. what you
0: mean.
1: I felt a little uh you know, with work and with with you know Jason getting sick sometimes and you know everything. I felt a little overwhelmed. And I, I listened to um uh Father Mike Schmidt talking about uh Saint Paul and um having it says having no anxiety at all. And this is when Saint Paul was in uh was in prison he was actually in prison and he was talking, he was just saying, you know, essentially be grateful for what you have. Gratitude is the um, is the counter to anxiety. So d- don't think about what if, think about what is. And uh, when, I, when I heard this, I, I listened to it two more times on my long flight to Singapore and it really, really gave me a lot of insight and it really helped. So hopefully that helps the listeners.
0: Mm, mm, that's good, isn't it? I mean, gratitude, um, the research on gratitude is so powerful in terms of just general mental health but if you put it into the faith context it's just even more powerful i think Mm. well thank you both for your time and thank you for sharing um so powerfully about your experience and so openly would really appreciate uh, your vulnerability that brings us to the end of our time together. The listeners, you can find more information, including links to our blessings, the show notes and more at smartloving.org slash conversations. That's www.smartloving.org forward slash conversations. I'm Francine Perola from Smart Loving with special thanks to our guests or and our regular contributor, Laura and Joe Kane. We pray that you listeners will be blessed in your walk with the Lord today and we lift you up and all your intentions to our patron saints. Our Lady Undoer of Knots, pray for us, and St John Paul II, pray for us. This is Smart Loving Conversations. Goodbye.